Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Hunt Talk Radio. Um, I'm at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Annual Rendezvous in Missoula, Montana today. And I have with me two great guests, um, guys who piqued my interest because of how hunting and food are so connected for them. Uh, we're going to get to them in a second, but I want to get to the uh, sponsors of, the bit of this podcast right up front so that we can really get to the content and not have to interrupt anything. And... You know that the Go Hunt group, uh, GoHunt.com, has this insider service that I use, and it's one of those can't-live-without-it kind of services now. Uh, you hear in today's world a lot of talk about hunting consultants. Well, if you want to be your own hunting consultant, go and subscribe to the insider service with Go Hunt. And when you do that, use the promo code HUNTTALK, H-U-N-T-T-A-L-K. And when you do that, you're going to get yourself a free Gerber Vital Scalpel Blade knife, the same knife that I use out in the field. And just make sure you go to GoHunt.com, uh, click on the Insider, and use the promo code HUNTTALK. And you will get yourself not only tons and tons of great information that will help you draw more tags and fill more tags, but you'll also get yourself a great Gerber Vital knife. And the, uh, the other sponsor of this podcast uh, is Onyx Maps. Uh, those of you who hunt the public-private land interface the way I do, uh, you know that I don't leave home without my Onyx Maps. Uh, whether you have the new Hunt app that you use on your phone or whether you use the chips that go in your GPS, go to onyxmaps.com, every state in the country. It's going to give you some of the greatest information you could ever ask for. It's going to make you hunt safe, hunt smart, and hunt confident. So, <clears throat> with uh, no further delay... I have uh, two guys who, one I know really well, one I've, I've uh, come to follow because of all of his writing about food and cooking, and Hank Shaw from Sacramento, California is with us, and Hank, I don't want to give the wrong introduction for you, so you can introduce yourself however, but I think before we turned on the mic, you were saying hunter, angler, gatherer, forager... Exactly. I um, I run the website Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, and I write cookbooks. And basically, I'm at the interface of food and and wild food. So hunting and gathering and berries and mushrooms and deer and rabbits and fish and all that sort of thing. Cool. And also with us is J.R. Young. He is the Colorado or California chapter chair of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And Jay and our J.R. and I met through. I think our Hunt Talk web forum is where you and I kind of yep. bumped into each other. And since then, I think I probably waste more of your time than probably you care to have to deal with my crazy questions. And, hey, JR, why don't we apply for the same moose tag in Idaho this year? We got a 50-50 chance. Well, JR was the 50 and I was the zero. So, But uh, JR is, uh, I don't think you write about cooking, but. On my website, the Hunt Talk Forum, you sure provide a lot of information about cooking and other stuff. And so, any specific, uh, I mean, you're a business person. I don't want to fault you or, or taint your reputation by talking about your professional introduction, but you got any personal introduction about hunting that I'm missing here? Not, not really. Food's just, um, food's always been important to me. Uh, my, my mom was, uh, uh, yeah, as Hank pokes my belly, I wish you guys could see that. 
never trust a skinny chef or something like <laughs> something to that effect. Um, that, but but you know, it, I I was kind of a, a you know maybe an offshoot of Darwinism as my mom grew up in northern Minnesota and the only thing she knew how to cook was hot dish. <laughs> yeah. So, wait, wait, wait. can you imagine in northern Minnesota if they didn't make Campbell's cream of mushroom soup? Or tater tots. Tater tots. Everybody had starved to death. You go to a funeral or a potluck or smorgasbord, as they call it up there, and there's eight people get the same tater tot hot dish that they brought. <laughs> oh, I like that one. It's got the potato chips on top. Yeah, dare you betcha. Oh, that was good there the other day. <laughs> but anyhow, Jay, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but. Uh, yeah, no. So I just, I mean, food is a, is a hobby of mine. Um, you know, I worked in, worked in restaurants all through college, whether it was, you know, front of house stuff. I never, I'm not professionally trained. I, I watched a lot of TV when there was actually really good cooking shows back on TV. Um, and just, just, just really enjoy it and tying that into, you know, hunting since I was, you know, officially since at the age of 12, just tying in the, the food that I get to go hunt and, and I get to cook it. Cool. Well, a lot of people who follow our podcast or our TV show or our hunt talk forum or our new YouTube channel, uh, I just did a, a YouTube piece called why I hunt hyphen food. Uh, and I came to hunting through food, uh, probably like you guys did. I grown up in Northern Minnesota, everybody, if you didn't hunt it, grow it, shoot it, catch it, you, that, that's what most people, most, a lot of people ate what they harvested or whatever you want to call it, what they took from the wild. And so no matter where I'm at in my hunting life, I always get back to the food component. And I think right now in the hunting world, you guys are are an illustration of this, if you want to call it, I don't like to call it a food movement. I think it's just a natural expression of this is why we hunt, for the food. So, I mean, Hank, you've been writing about it. For yeah, I mean, I, um, some people know and some people don't know that I'm I'm what my friend Tovar Cerulli calls a late, an adult onset hunter. <laughs> I uh, I didn't start hunting until I was 32. Uh, and that was, oh God, I'm getting old. That was 14 years ago. Oh, wow. So I don't feel like a new hunter, but in the galactic sense, I guess I am, um, with only 14 years of experience, but I've, you know, sort of made up for lost time. But the sole reason I got involved in it was to eat more pheasants and eat more ducks and, and finally get a deer and that sort of thing. And I could have very, I'd been an angler and a, and a forager, well, my entire life. So I had been fishing in Minnesota. I picked it up in Minnesota, by the way. Okay. Um, uh, I, I, uh, we, we probably know the same guy, a guy named Chris Niskanen, who uh, used to be the St. Paul Pioneer Press's outdoor writer. Okay, yeah. And, and so he's the one who brought me out. We'd been fishing all the time, and there's only so many walleyes you can eat. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's infinite. I've actually, I've actually um, I'm trying to switch him over to burbot because I love eating burbot. Uh, you know what they call those in Minnesota? Lawyer fish. Lawyer. Yep. Yeah. You know, most people call them ling in Minnesota. Or eel pout. Lawyer. Eel pout. Eel pout. Yeah. yeah. But so I, he's like, oh yeah, it's hunting season. I should take you out. And I'm like, all right. Uh, I haven't really shot a gun since junior high school. And um, so we went out. We went out pheasant hunting in Aberdeen, and I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Although I did hit a rabbit, um, <laughs> which is because it was it, it hadn't jumped yet. Um, <laughs> so. So I was successful and, and, but he, yeah, I was, the thing that really brought me to it was 
when you fish, when you're a good angler uh, or a good forager, you learn a piece of land in a way that you wouldn't if it's just, if you're an angler where, oh, you know, it's Saturday, let's go fishing. Well, that's not normally the best time to go fishing. What's normally the best time is, I'm an ocean fisherman, I should say. So you're looking at tides, you're looking at temperature, you're looking at weather, you're looking at gradients in the, in, in the ocean. That tells you when to fish. And so you get an intimate knowledge of, of a seascape. And, and Chris had this intimate knowledge of the landscape through hunting. So that's the, that's the non-food aspect of what really excites me about hunting. But it, at the end of the day, I mean, I want to eat more pheasants and eat more ducks and that sort of thing. So it's, it, it's, that's what drew me in. And I think for a lot of food-oriented hunters, of which there are a great number right now, food is sort of gets you in the door, but the other intangibles keep you there. Yeah. And so when you say foraging, JR is always posting on the website all these really cool recipes that have some exotic kind of things. I don't even know where you get them. If you're buying them, if you're picking them, I mean, for me, I, okay. I, me, it's, we got some potatoes, we got some meat. We're ready to go. I look at the stuff that you, well, cook, you are Jay. from Minnesota. <laughs> uh, that, I know. I mean, the Minnesotans have like the most bland palate in all of the world. Oh, it's spicy. There's pepper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I look at the stuff that JR puts out on our website. I'm like, man, that looks really good. But where do you, I mean, do you grow a lot of your stuff, JR? Do you? We, we've, we've got a garden um, that we've, that we've cultivated kind of the last few years, um, you know, on and off. Had a small house fire a couple of years ago, but that's another story. Um, but, but we grow a lot of ingredients and, and to, to, you know, to be honest, when I moved back to California, moved to California in 2000, late 2003, um, my wife read omnivores dilemma. I hadn't hunted in a few years and she basically sent me out on a pig hunt and I was successful. And so I had this pig to, to cook, but I was, you know, kind of searching, you know, how to get hunting in California. And I think, first I came across, you know, it was kind of in the blogosphere. This was probably 2007, 2008, uh, timeframe. And I came across Holly's website. I think when she was running, she was blogging uh, and then I, Holly came, being Hank, Holly's my, uh, Holly is my, uh, girlfriend of yeah. love many, many years. So, I mean, if we had common law, she'd be my common law wife, but, uh, so. her, her site was NorCal Casadora. Yeah. So came across NorCal Casadora and then came and then found Hank's site. And, and then I think even I found Tovar's site. Uh, then but um, at that point that's kind of when I started following Hank and I, I mean I found a lot of inspiration of just all the different the different game recipes and you know and, and trying to grow my own stuff and we live in California food is really easy to come by we have tremendous farmers markets um, so you know all sorts of different different ingredients that we can get and and I haven't even really tapped the surface of of what we have that's available to us um, and and in California in general, but, um, you know, I guess I've only got a limited toolbox, so I, you know, I can't go too far off into the weeds and stuff, but <laughs> I like to cook what I like to cook and, uh, just enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, the, the satisfaction that comes with, when I sit down and I move the potatoes away and I, I didn't grow the, my potatoes, but I've got this tenderloin or this backstrap, whatever it is. There is just something unique that I don't know how you can explain the satisfaction that comes with harvesting, cooking, preparing your own meal that came from some natural place, as opposed to going down and throwing a burger on the grill that you bought 
the burger down at somewhere else. Abs- I mean, the, the, the analogy I give to people when I'm talking to sort of you know, mixed audiences who are not just full of hunters and anglers is most people have gone fishing at one point. Mm-hmm. And f- for most people, the best trout or the best walleye or the best bass or whatever it is in the world is that one you caught that morning and you're frying it up in, in a pan in a, in a camp. It's the because you're tasting, yeah, you know, the fish, the salt, the pepper, and the satisfaction of a job well done. That is, that will, it really, it hits you at a kind of a cellular level. I mean, there is the people want to work for their food. I mean, all animals do better when they work for their food. I mean, there's there's a very famous example of big cats in a zoo, and the big cats were in a typical zoo exhibit, and they were super depressed. Uh, they're just hanging around. They're getting grouchy, and they just they weren't good exhibits because they, you know people would come and they'd just be sitting there yeah. lying there. So they brought in an expert, uh, and it's a woman named Temple Grandin. I don't know if you've heard of her, but no. she's a, a very famous animal psychologist, for lack of a better term. But sure. I mean, she 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 understands animals better than most people understand people. And she said, "No, no, no! You've got to change this." So that what they did is they changed the way that the, the cats were fed, and they had to solve a problem. They, and the problem would change with some frequency, and if they didn't solve the problem, they didn't get their, their hunk of meat. Okay. So immediately, immediately after they did that, the cats are happy, tails are <laughs> flopping by, they're, they're purring, they're doing, I mean, they're, you know, these are lions and stuff, and they're doing all kinds of things that, that, cat, that a happy cat would do because they have a purpose, they have a job. And we get the same response when... We're eating something that we have solved a problem. We've we've spent 27 days in a deer stand until we get the deer, or we've hiked six miles in to get the trout, or whatever. There's that 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 solving of that problem clicks something somewhere deep in the brain, and and it's 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 there's no you cannot um, you cannot you know you can't substitute it for anything. Yeah, and and that's why I, I struggle to explain that gratification that feeling and everyone tries to corner it into oh you're just trying to justify going and shooting a big animal or whatever it it, it's one of those things like many things in life that are deep and personal and inside that if you don't experience it you're probably no matter how hard someone tries you're not going to understand it to its fullest extent I, I don't think. At least, though, it's it's a translatable experience. You don't have to be a hunter. You could dig clams, right? You know, you could you know you could catch fish. I mean, there's it does there does seem to be actually no. I was going to say that it does seem to be something uh, like a, a flip of a switch between animal and vegetable and mineral kind of thing. But but it's the same feeling about if you come home with mushrooms. Mm-hmm. So, but you have to hunt for it. It can't be berry picking because you know where the bush is. It's got to be something where you don't know where it is and then you find it and then you bring it home and eat it. So if it's mushrooms, because you never know where they're going to be, right? or clams or fish or hunting, all of that gives you that same feeling. So you don't necessarily have to take a gu- take up a gun to know what that feeling feels like. Yeah. Mush- mushroom hunting is like, you know, the ultimate Easter egg hunt. It just... And it, it, you get out, and if you get into, I, I particularly love to to find morels. I don't have a, a very broad, um, you know, set of mushrooms that I, that I'm after: morels, chanterelles, uh, porcini's. And but going after morels is it's just it's one of those springtime things that you get out. 
the you know the air is fresh i mean it's you know in granted we don't really have winter in california um but you know it's those elements of of being able to get out and get out in the woods and and hike around and you know you find those spots somewhere else and it's just it's it, it really is a rush i mean i don't it never goes away you find a flush <laughs> of, of of 15 20 morels and you get down because you see one you get down on the ground and you pick it and you see another and you see another and it's just it, i call it, that knee walking yeah, so yeah it you just get down on your knee and you're like you're cutting one and you here's the thing like you never move until you look around right yep and yeah. then they're like, okay, I'm going to move that way because there's one. And then you hope, hope, hope that when you knee walk over to that uh, that other one, that you see another one that you can then knee walk to. And you just, just I just spent like a, a whole hour down cutting morels, just going like knee to knee to knee. Those days, like you never forget those days. Yeah. And then, or the times that you get down and around and then you, you turn around and realize you walked over a dozen before you got to the one that you found. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's fungus fever, like buck fever. I mean, <laughs> it, it really, really, is. Fungus it really is. Fever. It, <laughs> well, in Montana, it almost, so, it almost sounds like a disease. Uh, it does. I remember that <laughs> college was tough. <laughs> Oh, man, before we turned on this podcast, things were going downhill in a hurry. So we're going to we're going to try to turn Hank away from that discussion before we head back down that path. But Too late. It's, uh, you know, the in Montana in the springtime after there's been a burn that next year, the morel folks are out there and this like you call it fungus fever. I mean, there have been stated and recorded acts of violence <laughs> about people fighting over well, these morel harvests. Oh, and and there's a there's a market for it too. It's not just I I harvest personally. I I don't harvest commercially, but I've been in spots, especially in, um, you know, in in, in Washington. I you know moved away to, from Washington, but we we would still return to this area near where we had a cabin growing up, and and there was morels there. And so we'd go out, a, a, it was kind of a family trip. We'd, we'd all kind of come back, my brother, my dad, um, and, and my wife and my son and I would go go back there. And there was a burn in that area, you know, the year prior. And all of a sudden we're out there and a van full of people rolls up. The van open, the, the door to the van opens and a bunch of people jump out and go and the van drives off. And here's all these commercial pickers that are out there because I mean, it's big dollars. When you think I I've seen morels as high as $50 a pound really? for sale. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll get a commercial permit if it's a good burn. Um, I'll go to the, you just go to the national forest and you buy a, buy a permit and then it's like in the national forest near me, it's a hundred bucks and it's, you can pick all you want. Yeah. And I do that every, I don't know, three or four years when there's a, if there's a big burn near me where I can pick a hundred pounds, then yeah, I'll do that. But oh. normally, like I'm like Jr. I just I just pick for myself or maybe some friends. Wow. Well, one of the things that food really excites me about, well, because I'm hungry right now. <laughs> but the the notion of food and its motives for connecting people to the landscape. That we all know how complicated it is to get new people, whether they're young or as you called it, adult onset into outdoor activities. I don't care if it's hunting, fishing, foraging, or whatever. It seems like the connection to food and the foraging and the picking and the whatever you want to call it is one of the lower barriers to get people connected to the land. In other words, you could be a suburbanite, maybe not an urbanite, but you would still have opportunities to go not that far and find landscapes that can get you 
food. I mean, and whether it's small game, whether it's... Uh, well, you can do it in an urban environment. There's an entire urban foraging movement. Tell yeah. me more about that, Hank. I, the, because to me, when I go to an urban environment, I'm like, get me out of here. Well, I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I was born and raised in, in New Jersey in a very suburban area, and I've spent much of my teenage years in Manhattan. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite. I like cities. Um, but this whole urban foraging movement is, first of all, if it's in an area that has um, fruit trees, mm-hmm. there is, there are most cities will have a law where, like, okay, so if I've got a tree that and it droops over public ground, i.e., the sidewalk. What's over the sidewalk is fair game. Now you can't you can't cross the fence, but and then there's lots of people. I mean, especially in California, where I don't know how. I mean, I've got an orange tree. I mean, I don't know how many oranges I can eat, right? Yeah. You know, if I've got 500 oranges in my tree, I'm not going to eat 500 <laughs> oranges. So you know, there are these either gleaners who who will pick them with permission, or I mean, the other thing that we do in in I mean, you can do this anywhere with if you did it in Minnesota, it'd probably be apples and pears, is just swap. Yeah. And it, there's lots of these trees in cities. There's there's an entire uh, lands. I mean, most landscaping plants have edible berries. Like I see right on this hotel outside, there's Oregon grape, done as a landscaping bush. Delicious berries. I mean, they they're they're tart and they're sort of sweet, and they make a fantastic jelly. And those kinds of plants are everywhere. And there are people who tap into that. Like there's there's a place in Portland, Oregon, where somebody decided to plant cloudberries and i don't know if you've ever had a cloudberry it's an arctic no. res, uh, an arctic relative of a raspberry that tastes like awesome okay. and the, it's the only place outside the arctic i know of them so like i'll actually drive up to portland <laughs> which is 600 miles i mean it's not the only reason i'm driving to portland but no, <laughs> i'll always try to make up oh yeah the cloudberries are in i hope nobody's picked them yet so oh. you know, yeah i mean it's you don't have to be in the wilderness to to get that but it's i mean it sure helps yeah well, I just see so many people coming to hunting through the food movement and just their concern about the quality of their food and the origin of their food. And when I see that, I get excited because whether they end up being big game hunters, small game hunters, or not hunters at all, but they understand the connection of food and healthy landscapes, to me, that makes it uh, an easier discussion to have where they understand why I hunt. I don't don't feel like I have this big hurdle, this big mountain where I have to justify to them, here's what I'm doing. They are connected to the landscape because of those activities. And for you guys to live in a highly populated place like California and be able to do what you guys do with the landscapes and with the foods there, to me, it's just it's fascinating to me. I'm almost like watching you guys from afar as an audience, saying, "How cool is that? How how in the hell are they doing that?" And I mean, Jr., you your wife's a doctor. I mean, you guys are all about what what I gather anyhow. And talking to you when we discuss it and and reading what you write, um, food quality is pretty high up your list. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely up there. Um, my wife's a, a naturopathic doctor, um, so I like to joke that she treats people with twigs and berries. Um, <laughs> but that's that's not really the case. She's she has a she has a pretty successful there medical are seeds pra- too, probably and roots. <laughs> Don't forget the roots. <laughs> Strange herbs. Um, and no, but in it's it's just been one of our 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 big things. Uh, I, 
most of what we do outside of work for us is is food related whether that's um you know gardening um you know I, i like to collect wine and drink a lot of, and drink a lot of beer taste a lot of beer um but it's it's all food driven we have chickens and you know and we've wanted to incorporate that with raising our son who's who's five and give him a um, you know, when we talk about the, the cats having a job to get their food, but we even want to give our son a chore for the food and whether that's, you know, Hey, let's go, let's go pick some tomatoes for, for dinner tonight, or let's go check on the chickens. And do they, you know, do we have eggs? So uh, almost most of what we do recreationally is food driven. And if we're going camping somewhere, we're going to be looking in, can we go out and, you know, can we go foraging for mushrooms or can we go hunting somewhere? Can we just, you know, just go out and go for a walk and, and be outside. But food it's 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 huge for us i mean it's just it's just a a a massive part of our life and um with her being a a naturopathic doctor and kind of going back to the ingredients component she you know we we buy herbs in in bulk and we have this massive wall um for a pantry and it's full of um full-size quart jars of herbs and spices and half gallon ball jars uh of you know of different teas and mixtures and all sorts of strange stuff and you know we just get these herb catalogs and we'll just buy stuff because and uh, you know just as a note to the readers don't ever buy a pound of dried chives because it comes in a garbage size bag but that's <laughs> that's my wife she was slightly impulsive and checking off that i needed this 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 and this and you know a pound of salt and a pound of chives ends up being a quite quite different different size <laughs> comparison but you know that's uh it's it, it's just it's just really important to us um because food is a uh, you know it's kind of it's just old brain thing that that drives a lot of people and not to say that you know we don't go out and get fast food occasionally i mean we do and but to the extent that we can we um you know we we like to have high quality food we love to entertain that's a big thing for my wife and i we love to bring people in um you know even i mean ultimately i'm kind of an introvert so i just i don't mind being sequestered into the kitchen but (laughs) i love feeding people and she's italian she totally loves feeding people it's and that's really important and to be able to share wild game or mushrooms or fish that we've caught um you know herbs that we've picked um it's it it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of fun and to see that reward of people um you know i did a I did a bear ham for easter this year Wow. So, and, you know, and I had some vegetarians at my house, um, but, you know, I had people that, um, you know, just wanted to enjoy that experience and I'd never done a bear ham. I used Hank's recipe. You can go to the website to find that recipe. Um, what, what is that website? Huh? That is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Dot <laughs> 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 com. <laughs> it's like like when it, you know, people work, you know, can I get your book? It's available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys are touching on some things here that I'm, I've been a subscriber to what I think might be a myth that hunting, fishing, gathering is only and only can be a rural pastime or a rural pursuit. It, you, you guys have just told me a lot of things that are like, you know what? I'm no longer going to necessarily buy into this. Oh, it's too hard for people in cities or it's too hard for people in suburban areas. Maybe everything else is just too One convenient. of the best bird hunters I know uh, lives in the Bronx. What's he hunt in the Bronx? Uh, he doesn't hunt in the Bronx, but he oh. lives in the Bronx. Oh, I got you. Okay. So, I mean, it's 
you know, yeah, obviously you can't shoot a gun in, in <laughs> like, suburbs well, or cities. I, maybe I do but, like cities. <laughs> but where people, yeah, exactly. Well, the guns are shot, just not at, you know, game animals. Uh, but yeah, the, the, you hear, you see, I'm trying to think about, you know, that when I was a kid in Jersey, you would get on the, on headboats and fishing boats and you'd see guys driving from the deep, you know, Manhattan or the Bronx or Brooklyn and they drive or take the train out and you, you know they've had their rods and reels and their buckets and stuff on the train and take it out to the to you know, Freeport or somewhere in Nassau County and then they would you know get on the boat so the urge to do this is you know it's you can't do it in the city although I see, I've seen people catch striped bass right at Battery Park huh. and I've seen people pull out champion smallmouth right in the near the wading pool uh in the potomac river in washington dc and i mean where i live in sacramento we have the second greatest shad run in the world in the city limits really yeah and and do a lot of people take advantage of that yeah yeah and there's stripers there and then you can you know you can catch chinook salmon right in downtown sacramento and people do so hunting sure there's a firearms issue um but i mean there are places in suburbs where you can bow hunt Mm mm-hmm you know, and it's so, yeah, I mean, it's easier if you have the freedom of movement in, in a wild place, but it's not, people will find a way. Huh. That's just, so for me, I'm sitting here like, all right, all of Randy's biases or preconceived notions are starting to crumble here on the table in front of us because I, I grew up rural. I've mostly lived rural. Um, and I just, I always mistakenly, think of my manner of acquiring food as a rural pursuit and maybe it is more rural just because of the convenience of it but if if we're going to expand this window of or this opportunity of people concerned about food origin food quality maybe it, it, for me anyhow it's comforting to hear you guys say that you know where you live isn't necessarily a a constraint that you you can't it's not the excuse to say, oh, I live in the city or I live in an urban area, so I can't do this. Is that safe to say that? I mean, JR, you live in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in the Bay Area. I mean, technically where I am is, is rural, but I live very close to um, downtown Los Gatos, which is really just a bedroom community of, of San Jose. I mean, there's, um, you know, the South Bay Area is, is flooded with people, but we have... Um, just right below my house, we um, we have a reservoir that people are out fishing frequently. Um, I'm right in the heart of the Santa Cruz Mountains. There's tremendous opportunities right there, and so, and literally any of the folks in the Bay Area, um, you know, whether it's there on the the East Bay side or on the Peninsula side, there there's hills that they back up to, and they can run out and jump in those hills uh, really easily to to go out and find something, or they can take a journey journey farther. Um, you know, we've got the beauty of the ocean. There's a whole, and we haven't even talked about that body of food that, you know, whether it's going out in tide pools and collecting seaweeds or, um, you know, or different mollusks or whatnot. Um, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Tasty bivalves. (laughs) Tasty bivalves. (laughs) Um, but it, you know, and another thing just, um, you know, as a point of reference, uh, I, I'm a, was a, I'm a hunter ed instructor in California and I went to the hunter ed instructor training and the huntered.com folks were there and, uh, and, you know, and they brought in some statistics that, you know, you can, you can look at any state across the union and generally 
you know, something like 70 to 80% of a hunter ed class is 12 to 18 year olds. Yeah. Um, for their online based courses, um, which, uh, you know, which, which they run, they have, there's an inverse relationship in California, particularly in San the San Francisco Bay area and Los Angeles, the two urban city centers, um, about 60 to 70% of the people, especially taking the online course out of convenience and being tech savvy and a couple other components there, um, are, are adults. And so there's a lot of people, um, you know, that are, that are kind of coming into the hunting ranks. We know that women is the fastest growing constituent. Um, but we, but we know that there's also growth in the, in the urban areas. Um, one of my co-chairs of the California chapter lives on Lombard street in San Francisco, which is, you know, that's the famous crooked street yeah. in, in San Francisco that most people have recognized or seen on a movie or something to that effect. But it's where Steve McQueen likes to drive his, uh, his, you know, remember the Steve McQueen movies? A little bit. Oh, I'm a little bit younger. I just showed my age. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that I remember them, Hank, but I didn't have a TV till we were about 12. So, well, um, you were living in a black and white world back I then. I was. Right? We we got one channel out of Winnipeg, CBC. No way, really. Yeah, you were up there in the trees, yeah. Yeah, we were there, and uh, and when you got that one channel, it, I mean, it, it was back in the day when Canadian TV it'd go blank at like 10 at night. You know, I, wouldn't, wouldn't fire up until like seven again. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the, the 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 fuzz screen. Like, oh, yeah, that, that concludes our programming for the day. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's when you knew you were up late. Yeah. So, man, I'm I'm really aging myself now. I'm a pretty soon. I'll have to talk about the fact that we had a party line, and some of your listeners are probably like, "What's a party line?" Oh it, wow. It, the the phone used to ring, and if it was two rings, it was you. If it was one ring, it was the person further down the wire. So if they picked up, you could pick up and listen in on their conversation. And uh, so, uh, but we're getting into a tangent. <laughs> we're, we're, we're showing the world how small Randy came from. I mean, this is like, oh. <laughs> Sounds like early days social media. Party line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm sitting here thinking about all of my life experience as a hunter starting out where food was such an important component and still is and then you you grow into understanding how it's part of your culture part of who you you have as an identity where you came from it then drives you into conservation it drives you into a whole lot of other things does gathering or the you know the gardening whatever you want to all these other terms that come to to be used for gathering your own food do those same principles of connection to the land, conservation, all that, do, do those quickly become apparent to you of their importance when you're in the gathering world as they do in the hunting world? I think it, I, I, I would say yes, but um, the non-hunting aspect of wild food, you know, acquisition for lack of a better term, they don't have the critter clubs like they do for hunters. So there's no... DU, no Elk Foundation, no exactly. Bighorn Sheep Society. I mean, you do have few. There's there's, there's a striped bass group in the in the east. Um, there's Golden Gate Salmon. Um, so th they do exist for fish. But the thing about for actual real serious foragers, they tend to be um, different. Okay. <laughs> they, they don't they're, want anyone to know where they're for. Right. So... Yeah, you know there are mushroom clubs, um, 
so there, there there's an there's but there's no sort of national ah, that's not true there's a national mushroom group so and they have like national forays so i mean there's there you and believe me you need to go to one because it's just an anthropological experience really just, oh yeah <laughs> it's like um i don't know if you're like if you're familiar with hogwarts it's you know in harry potter it's like it's like you're going to hogwarts it's just bizarre like the, mushroom hunters are great people but they're different Okay. There you <laughs> so, so I mean if you're a forager, you're a serious forager, are you like some of my buddies who are serious hunters where they drive their wives Honda Accord to the trailhead cuz they don't want anyone to know where they're hunting. Oh, morale hunters? Yeah. I've I've met morale hunters who won't tell their wives, their kids. Like, no, <laughs> they'll be on their deathbed. It's behind the cottonwoods. <laughs> it it kind of goes back to your discussion earlier today on 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 elk on public land and how you won't give up those late season big bull spots. Yeah. That's mushroom hunters are like that with all their spots. Really? It's e, e, you know. are are they recurring spots or are Depends on the mushroom. Okay. Like morels in most of the country are um porcini are you know those that's sort of uh, porcino is a it, it's the king of all mushrooms. It's a great big mushroom. Uh they're very firm. They I mean people go to great lengths to look for them and they're they're primarily uh, Rockies to the Pacific coast, but they, they can be found in the rest of the country, but they're extremely rare in a place like Ohio or, or Maine or something like that. But we, you know, JR and I go nuts over them every fall and spring because there's a spring flush too. And that's a case where I know which particular ponderosa pine that this patch is under. And I'm, uh, <laughs> no I, one's going to follow you. Not even Holly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny. I mean, Fishermen are kind of the same way. Hunters oh, yeah. are the same way. Jock hunters are the worst. Like, you know, because you've got your honey hole in a, on a free roam area of a public refuge. And, you know, people are like, oh, where'd you go? To Around. Del- to Dullivan. Yeah. Where in Dullivan? Around. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just interesting to see so many parallels to no matter what part of the food movement movement you talk about, whether it's the cultural part, whether it's the actual part in the field, you know, I don't want anyone to know where those shrooms are. I don't want to, I think it's just there. And I, one of the things I want to get to in this discussion is I think we often find reasons to consider ourselves different when so often there's a lot of a, a lot about what we do and how we behave and where our values are that are the same. And nothing makes that more apparent to me than the pursuit of food. Oh, I mean, I see it all the time. I mean, with with what I do, because I do, I, I touch all varieties of wild food. So, at the events that I do, and I go every time I have a book out, I go all over the country and and have you know do events. You'll see, I have literally seen, you know, hipsters in Priuses get out of the you know get out and park right next to ranchers and duallys. To, and they both sit down at the same table and they might not ever speak to each other ever in real life. But at my events, I'm seeing them just swap stories over duck hunting or, you know, or, or fishing or whatever. And it's that per, they, they all have that pursuit of food in common. And it's, I mean, let's face it. Um, this is, you know, the country <laughs> where the people are divided right now right. for lots of reasons. And, to find any kind of thing that you can bring people of wildly disparate views and, and mores. And this is what brings them together is this, this singular pursuit of, 
food in general because I, I don't want to I don't want to kick out the you know homesteaders or backyard chicken people or something because they're doing it too they're doing right. it a different way but it's I don't care if you are somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun or somewhere to the left of Karl Marx chances are if you guys if you both deer hunt and there are plenty of liberal deer hunters yep. um, you're going to have something in common to talk about yeah and and for me that and what you just mentioned Hank is my worry of the future is so much based on our as this world population grows to seven to eight billion to who knows where it's going to be when this country's population gets to 350 million to 400 million the conservation of the landscapes is going to be a greater and greater challenge because of the demands a growing a, a burgeoning population places on it in Really, some of our struggles or some of our successes are going to be how well we as a society are able to satisfy the needs of that growing population, but yet maintain a landscape that can produce and provide the basics of what we need. And I think food, no matter how you want, which category you want to place it in, is a place where all of us can come to a focal point and say, it starts at the land. And healthy land is going to be good for us going forward, no matter what it is. And Jr., you and I, we, you know, when we get into some serious talks about hunting, um, I think we would both agree there's many times where it's it can be divisive. It's about well, I hunt public land or private land. Okay, I hunt with a bow. I hunt with a muzzleloader. Even within our hunting community, I think that food can bring us back to that common place where we're all on the same page we're all with the same priorities the same values and hopefully food helps push aside the differences and focus on the commonalities yeah we can we certainly get off track over some of those some of those differences you know whether it's technique discussions public private um you know we can we can definitely get off track and i you know, but coming back to food and and talking about what are you going to do with that deer that you shot with your muzzle loader on on public or with your, you know, with your with your crossbow on private or however it wants to work, um, you know, and and kind of bringing that back and kind of reminding us why we're out there. We're all out there for hopefully ultimately kind of the same reason. We go about it on different paths, right? And, and that's and that's okay. Um, and, and we should be okay with that because there's all sorts of different pursuits that we can take to, um, you know, to, to bring that animal home, um, and to be able to, to share with others and to bring people around a table, um, and, you know, and, and just, just, you know, share and, and provide for others. Um, you know, we're kind of, don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but we're talking about like this trophy last night or you know the the concept of the trophy where you've got a, a a mule deer buck 180 mule deer buck on your wall and a, and a and a and a doe skull on your wall well as hunters we recognize um certain aspects of that but we're kind of projecting on that at the end of the day you kind of come back and you never know what the journey was to get to get either one of those and that that doe may have been some sort of brutal hunt and weather whatever what and you know and the the buck might have been shot underneath a, a swing set down in Stevensville or something you know <laughs> yeah no, I, but I, but it's the you know and and but you know I think it's a critically important that we continue to seek 
um, seek those things that, that can bring us together from wildly different um, from, from different places. And that's a great thing you hear about the guy driving up in the Prius and next to the guy parking in the Dooley. And, you know, my wife went to the fungus Federation meeting of Santa Cruz and <laughs> it exists. The it, fungus it Federation. It, ex, it exists. And if you can imagine my wife, she drove up in her convertible Mercedes and that's, you know, into that crowd they're kind of looking at her going uh, are you sure you're supposed to be here but <laughs> my wife has a background in medicine she has an extensive background in um you know, you know in herbs and fungi and then they're like you speak our language yeah. and they got really and you know and, and just different i mean i drive an electric car and so when I get back, I'm going to put a big hunt talk sticker on my electric <laughs> car because I love, I love breaking down stereotypes, but I yeah. also just love bringing different people together. And, and I saw uh, an NRA sticker on a Prius the other day. All right. That's hilarious. Cool. <laughs> well, I, Hank touched on how polarized we are as a society. And if we continue down a path of further polarization, if I don't know if you can get more polarized and confrontational than we are. And maybe it's because Lord, it's I hope a, not. I hope not. Maybe it's just because it's an election year. But I, I'm that there's an is, election going on. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't know it. You'd think it's reality TV, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, but that is so draining for those of us who are concerned about the future, and so distracting from the bigger part of what it is. And we, I think, in our discussions in our society. Uh, however it happened, whatever causes you want to point to, to how it is this way, the reality is people are far more comfortable, uh, and when I say people, some people are far more comfortable with the idea that someone went and picked a morale for a meal than someone went and killed the rabbit. Or even less comfortable, someone went and killed the deer. Or someone went and killed the bear. There are degrees of where this falls on a spectrum in the eyes of some people. And I'm hoping that whatever their motives for food are, they're somewhere on the spectrum, whether it is just picking them around. And that helps them understand that the person out on the other end of the spectrum, like JR, wanted made a bear ham for Easter, that in its most basic aspect, that is the same activity. But I think we as humans have a tendency to, we want to categorize, we want to prioritize, we want to value things differently. And when we value it differently, our response to when we see it or where we hear of others participating in it. There's a great different. example of that. Um, I run a Facebook forum called um, Hunt, Gather, Cook. And it's a closed forum. It's got 8,500 members from all over the world. Really? But they're mostly from what, U.S. Hold on. What, I'm going to write that down. What is it? Facebook? It's Facebook group called Hunt, uh, Gather, Cook. So if I sign up, are you going to allow me in I'll let you in. Okay. Basically, actually, I, I vet. I'll send you an invite right now. I okay. vet every single person who wants to go in because I, there's lots of spammers, and I just want to make sure that it's an actual human. Um, but the thing is that you want to talk about that spectrum. Mm -hmm. You We have everything from crystal worshiping vegetarian hippies to... Um, guys who have a serious spelling problem um <laughs> who those are the hunters you, you know those are the hunters well it's you know but i mean it's great because you see guys from you know little towns in the ozarks and it's just they'll, they'll post up things like yeah here's my sucker fish and you know 
or that you get, you know, I met a guy here at the rendezvous yesterday who, who had posted up uh, his lion steaks in a mountain, mountain, lion, mountain lion. Mountain lion. Yeah. And I personally, that's a line I don't cross personally. I don't want to eat dogs and cats. I don't want to hunt dogs and cats. I mean, I'd shoot them if they're coming after me, but that's, or killing my livestock, but that's about it, right? Yeah. But somebody else, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is that he's eating it. And that's where I, I think you can get an enormous amount of, the response that I just gave you. And it's sort of like, I would never want to do that, but at least he's eating it. So, you know, know, we've had long conversations about, does coyote taste good? Apparently it doesn't. Um, (laughs) We've had long conversations, you know, I mean, there are guys up in Nunavut who are like, look at my harp seal roast. And, you know, it's, it's, I know lots of people who would think this is a horrible thing. You can't eat seals. Oh my God, they're cute. Sure, they are cute, but these guys are eating them. And so, and does that get to the you used the term before we got on the air called what do you call the, it? The cutitarians. Cutitarians. Tell me, tell me, tell me how you get classified as a cutitarian. Okay, so the the origin of this term for me at least is I was taking uh, I was doing a, a freelance gig for the California uh, Tourism Department, and so I was taking them up tide pool foraging and then mushroom foraging up in Mendocino County, and. What was cool about it was they were it was it was a media tour and, and they didn't really know much about anything up there and it was it was neat to be able to show people things but the liaison with the tourism department was just you know young woman maybe I don't know 22 23 years old and we just got to talking about hunting and she was cool with it in general and then you know you start to talk about the particular game animals right. like you know rabbits oh, I love rabbits oh well, they're so cute. <laughs> Deer, oh, they have such big eyelashes, you know. Like, so she didn't, she she would not eat anything that she perceived as cute, which I thought was interesting because I I suppose, you know, it makes it easier if you know, if you think to eat ugly things. I mean, but then I showed her a picture of like a sculpin, Mm -hmm. and like, ah, I would never eat that, it's too ugly. So, I mean, there had to be some sort of weird sweet spot for her. uh, you know, a beautiful rain, full full spawn rainbow trout or Arctic char might work. Uh, maybe I don't know. It's, it maybe it might be too pretty. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's so it's it's people choose to put up lines. I mean, we all do it. You have lines. I have lines. Yep. Everybody has lines. And the the cutitarian one. Was, it was I've dubbed her a cutitarian. It was just. But then again, you know, you can. <laughs> we've we've had the joke where. I only eat cute animals. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't you you posted a, a you know a, a rabbit recipe for Easter, and I think that I think that kind of spawned a little. I, well, yeah, I have a tradition of eating rabbit on Easter, and, you know. <laughs> and I, well, I mean, I, I I admit I I sparked a conversation by starting that post with bunnies. <laughs> oh God! And I mean, let's face it, rabbits are super cute. They, they are, they but are, man, are they good eating? They are the oh. the center of the vortex of cute and tasty. Yeah, they they are the intersection of everything I want. <laughs> it, it it doesn't take a huge amount of effort to haul a limit of rabbits out like it does a limit of elk. Yeah, they taste marvelous. They're easy to cook. You can. It's hard to screw them up while cooking them. I mean. There's a reason why rabbits are the preferred forage of not just humans. Right. Everything they, wants a rabbit. They are the krill of the forest. Yeah. It's, but you, you said something about we all have lines, Hank, and I don't want to put either of you guys on the spot, but I'm going to tell you I have lines about where my comfort levels are. And some of it is appearances. Some of it is cultural. And it, we, you mentioned something earlier about burbot, ling, 
I know they're good eating, but they're the ugliest looking thing. That Stop. In, they remind me. Of Don't be a racist. They, <laughs> <laughs> they remind me of snakes. And I I have this snake. You don't like eels either? No, I don't. I, I When I commercial fished in Alaska, we'd catch those Congo eels. Oh, yeah, those are delicious. It, uh, I was like, get that thing out of here. It, it, and it's not that I'm afraid of snakes. I have this snake karma thing where I run into a few rattlesnakes every year when I'm out hunting. And my theory is I'll leave you alone, you leave me alone. Some guys kill them and eat them. Some guys just kill them. And I don't know what there, – there's got to be some – Something way back in my childhood or something where anything snake looking, I'm just, it's outside my lines. As far as, you know, mammals and other stuff, I don't know that I really have yet built a line on mammals. There's nothing I probably wouldn't try to eat if I. For me, it's dogs and cats. Um, I've tried lots of things like uh, my buddy in Ohio, um, he's a trapper. So occasionally he will. FedEx me random <laughs> exotic proteins. <laughs> so Holly would be like, hey, Hank, um, were you expecting anything from the mail that was um, bloody? <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh, no, it's got to be Joe. <laughs> you know, and so he sent me some muskrats. And I got to say, a muskrat is not my favorite. Uh, it, it's, it's pondy. It's not fishy. It's algae-like. Uh, that can be worked with. But... You know, that's an example of something. All right, gave it a shot. I didn't have any cultural or, or moral opposition to it. I just don't didn't happen to like it. And where I have kind of a, a personal cultural slash moral barrier about, you know, dogs and cats. Yeah. Some people have that with bears. Right. No, I know. I run into a lot of people who have that with bears. And Jr., you got any lines? You you. I, I'm I'm kind of at the dog and, and cat level. Although last year on on a bear hunt in Montana, somebody somebody brought some mountain lion. So, you know, of course, you know, so I, I ate it with, you know, we, everybody brought a, a, a wide array of food. Um, but that's, that's kind of it. I mean, I, I certainly we could talk this on a kind of a global perspective, but I don't know if I'd, you know, be eating, you know, certain varieties of jungle animals or, you know, anything else. But, you know, from the North American perspective, I, I think that's a pretty, pretty fair line for me. I'll, I mean, I'm kind of though it. I'm I'm kind of a you know trying anything once twice if you like it yeah. type person. So how, how was the mountain lion? It was good. It was breakfast yeah. sausage, so sagey maple leaf. But okay. But you know, it was it was they it was told ex- you it was mountain lion. It was actually yeah. chicken. <laughs> 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 but again, it, it you know it kind of goes into the into the sharing of you know we you know we we're all together and everybody brought something different to to bring to the table. I I brought my bear that I had shot from a year prior. Um, you know so. Um, but I don't, I, I don't have a ton of distinct lines. I mean, I think last year at the BHA rendezvous, I tried, you know, bowhead whale and yeah, that I, was, I tried that too. That was kind of I, I don't like, need to try that again. I mean, no, I, was, I have nothing against the fact that the, you know, the natives up there harvest bowhead whales, but I ate that thing, man. It fit like you ate the tongue off your boot that was coated in Vaseline or something. I, I was, mm. I kind of likened it to a, you know, a, a, a can of tuna fish that's been open for three days, coupled, coupled with like weak old bubble gum for texture. <laughs> Perfect. I, I just had to do it though. I, I saw that there and someone was like, Oh, that's a whale. I'm like, I know I'm not going to feel good after I eat this, but I mean, and it was like black. A, yeah. Which is kind of, you know, just, an, and not charred <laughs> clearly. It, it was, it was definitely a, uh, I guess 
it would fall outside my line geographically of what I'd ever be able to eat. But I, and when I ate that, it was like I was having a hot flash or something. There must be a serious <laughs> amount of energy in that. Hank, you okay there? Oh, I got a cramp. Yeah, Hank's standing here. He must have ate some sort of bad rhubarb or something. Too much seal oil. (laughs) (laughs) JR and I are sitting here relaxing, and Hank's standing up like we think he's about ready to have a seizure or something. But the reason I bring up these boundaries or these lines, whatever you want to call it, in the hunting community ourselves, each of us seem to have drawn our line, and we have a hard time, a lot of people do, I think, accepting lines that others have drawn for for whatever reason it is there's no right or there's no wrong it's you know like hank you say it's dogs and cats and i have no problem with that um in the forager gathering movement do people have lines oh, or, god uh, yeah with fish i mean there's you you yourself have fish prejudices against I, I, I do fish yeah, prejudices yeah. i actually want to write a book about it at some point because i don't think there is any other food item in the world where there are more deeply set lines of this is a good fish this is a bad fish like when i moved to minnesota i caught this thing that looked like uh, it looked like a a, a drum i'm like there's drum in, in the fresh water awesome yeah because yeah. you know i mean you catch croakers and spot in the east coast and you catch redfish in the in the mm-hmm. gulf and Here's this drum, and I cooked them up, and they were fantastic. And everyone said, you would eat a sheep head? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> everyone was like, sheep's head? Only those other people eat the... Right, thing. yeah. They so, got ro- Do you know they got rocks in their head? Right. Did they tell you that, too? Yes. <laughs> and the thing about it was, it just, it just fascinates me, is that fish especially, there's a us versus them. And people, I mean, one of the reasons why these lines, why people have, have an inability to accept somebody else's set of lines is because they are how we define ourselves as a, as a tribe. Mm-hmm. And whatever that tribe is, whether it's you know white Minnesotan, black Kentuckian, um, Russian, Hmong, uh, East Coast, West Coast, there's, you can, it, there, so they, these lines and these tribes are, are you know, the, the traditional bow hunter tribe. Mm-hmm. Oh, we hate compound bows. You are an inferior right. human for <laughs> using a compound bow. And it's, it, it's when you define yourself with a, a set line, whether it's equipment or food or whatever, it's, you like who you are, presumably. Right. And, and then you look at somebody who does something in a different way and you view them as, first off, not you. Right. Which sets them in one box. And then because you like the way that you do things, it's easy to say that not you is somehow not as good as you. Yeah. No, it, it, and here's a perfect example of, my camera guys are fanatic antler hunters. In the springtime, they... Oh, shed hunters? Yeah, they are out looking for shed antlers. I grew up with a bunch of uh, Native American friends who part of their faith, whatever you want to call it, their ideology, their their religion was antlers were a gift and you gave them back to the gods and they hang them in the trees. So I'm walking around the mountains of the West. I find shed elk antlers. I'm hanging them in the trees. And my camera guys are like, have you lost your mind? You know how much that antler is worth today? I'm like, you think I care? Oh, explain and, to me. Why would why do people hunt shed antlers other I, than they're, they're, they're cool? I, I, I don't do it. So it's hard for me to, to answer that question. But the passion for it is like, uh, oh, yeah. all I can figure is you called it fungus fever. There's some other fever. I don't know how, what you would 
Shed, shed fever too. It's it's it, and again, it's it's another component of here. We're coming out of the we're coming out of the winter. We can finally get up in the hills and and go chase them. There's certainly a monetary attachment to it because I know you can sell antlers for a, a right. sizable sum. Some guys just want have incredible collections. But you know, I was in the I was in a pet food store about a year ago and I was looking down. And they're like, it was like a six inch piece of elk antler. It was like a little piece of brow tine. And it was $35. I'm like, are you out of your effing Whoa, mind? I had no idea. Yeah. It's, it's just like the morale. It was like, I'm like, this, uh, it's just a little piece of brow tine off, off of an elk. But, you know, you yeah. give it to your dog, give it to your dog or whatever. But I think there's, there, there's, so there's definitely a, a monetary component of it. But it's a, you know, and it's a, it's another thing of, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to disparage anybody, but, you know, getting out there and having this huge pack of, we, you know, just antlers covered across your back and here you're, you're hauling them out. But it's, again, it's a fun adventure. It's like mushroom hunting. It's like an Easter egg hunt. Um, yeah. You know, so I think there's those components in there. I've, I've yeah. never done much shed hunting other than what I just randomly stumble upon. Yeah, me too. And, uh, and the other thing I know, lots of guys will make stuff with them. Right. Yeah, and, and for me, all of these, when we're talking about them, become ways that we express ourselves or interact with the other wild inhabitants of this world and it can be spiritual it can be cultural it can be economic it can be a multitude of things and what you said hank of we quickly judge the others if it's outside kind of our lines i'll admit to being guilty of that i there's something in the human mind that you start from the standpoint of oh they're different than me so you kind of are uncomfortable or reject it and you almost have to teach yourself or talk yourself into lowering what those lines are and realizing they don't really matter. Exactly. I mean, it, it also, where you grow up, if you grow up cheek by jowl with all kinds of different people, uh, you see that very, I mean, I grew up in Jersey. I mean, there's all kinds of different people in Jersey. There's all kinds of different people in, in Sacramento where I live now. So you have that on a personal level, just, you know, societal, cultural, racial, all that stuff. But, you know, the, the whole thing about, oh, let's just take, for example, um, I mean, we, I don't want to go down this road too much, but, you know, if people in the, in the East Coast, they don't have a lot of wild birds. So they hunt in preserves a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, you can have a whole podcast over, over the ethics of that if you wanted. But it's just, it's a fact of life. Yeah. And, you know, you people, it's easy to judge someone who lives in Pennsylvania and, and really the only opportunity they have to shoot pheasants is on a preserve. Provided they're eating their pheasants, again, back to the food, mm-hmm. you know, if that, you knock yourself out. And, you know, if, and if you don't want to do that, then, then, then that's also fine. Yeah. But it's, we just, we like boxes. We, we, we do. I, uh, we like boxes and it's just very natural for us to, reward the in-group and, and punish the out-group for, you know, at a, at, a, at a very broad level. Um, but a lot of that's just, you know, kind of touching upon what you are, just the, kind of the cultural differences. I was I was in Georgia um, last month visiting my brother, and he's like, do you want to go on a quail hunt? And he's like, I've, I, you know, I, I know somebody, and we can go. And um, so it was, it was a very different experience for me going out to this, you know, this, uh, you know, this, this quail property. It was like, you know, 3000 acres. It was massive. They didn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a planted bird type hunt, but it was, a, you know, they, they, they sourced them, you know, preseason and, and, and put birds out there. So there was a, it was a fairly wild experience, but these are just the different experiences that, that folks grow up in. And, you know, I'm sure in, down in Georgia, there's a, a ton of 
you know, tree stand whitetail hunters. That's, you know, very different from, from what I, from what I do when I, you know, either hunting in California or one of my many trips up to Montana or Idaho to go hunting. Um, but you know, we all kind of come from different areas, but again, it kind of comes back to that. We share this commonality of this pursuit and, Mm -hmm. and it's a little bit, there's, there's a lot of different shades of it all the way across the country and where you are and, 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 you know, the ability to kind of understand that and, and, and try and open up and understand what somebody else is going because that's what they grew up with. That's what, right. um, you know, and my perspectives from what I grew up with to where I kind of see now has, has changed significantly too. And, and some of that, you know, can go down in the, the weeds of just tactics and techniques of hunting, but just, um, you know, I've always trying to challenge my own assumptions of what I really like and make sure that I always try and, you know, step outside and look at it from a different angle and, and see what somebody else might've experienced. Um, you know, by the way they grew up or where they grew up or what they've, what they've seen in their life. So, yeah, uh, I, w- I want to touch on one thing along these lines is whole animal utilization. Yep. Yeah. I, I was kind of going to get there with a different idea, but I, go for it, Hank. So one of the things that I see with adult onset hunters a lot, so newcomers are typically urban or suburban, uh, is I'm going to be the good hunter. Not like all those other traditional hunters, the rednecks or whatever you want to call them, bull hunks. Um, the randies. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to be the ethical hunter and I'm going to use all of it. So let's set aside all the other, you know, most of that horse shit, for example. But and let's go to the whole animal. And mm-hmm. I'm going to use it nose to tail. And they assume... And I, I have to be admit I was guilty of, of this assumption when I started hunting. They assume that lifelong traditional hunters don't use, oh, they only eat the backstrap and they grind the whole rest into burger. And we absolutely know people who do that. Yeah. But the, you know, the research that I've been doing for this venison book that I've, that I've written, I was astonished to hear over and over and over and over again, no matter where it was in the U.S. and Canada, that, oh, yeah, of course, we always eat the liver. We eat the liver in camp. Or, oh, the heart's my favorite part. Uh, or the neck roast is something that, you know, I don't nobody gets the neck roast. Or, you know, I use the kidneys or the tongue or whatever. And, and so maybe it's in hot dish. Maybe it's ground elk heart in a, in a tater tot hot dish with cream and mushroom soup, which sounds disgusting to me. Yeah. But so what? <laughs> They're using it. Yeah. And, and th- that regional, cultural, rural, whatever you want to call it, you find a lot of people will use more of an animal than you might think if you just ask them. Whereas the, you know, people like me, I mean, I was a, a, a cook and a chef before I was a hunter. I'm, this is what, this is, I come at it from a cook's perspective. So of course I'm going to be looking at a dish. Like I even made venison tripe wow. and it was spectacular. I, I'm happy to pronounce. Really, um, it, it was kind of an icky job getting to it, uh-huh. but you know what? I mean, I love tripe. Tripe is fantastic. Um, why not do it with a, with a wild ruminant? And and I, I, I to this day, I don't think I've met anybody else who's eaten venison tripe, but I'm sure there's somebody listening to this who has. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like you just gotta. It's, an, it's a false barrier. Mm-hmm. That you hear, you know, a, a lot of, I, I hesitate to use the term hipster hunter, but I will. Um, new urban, suburban hunter who goes at it and, they, and they, their stated goal is to go nose to tail. And they make the assumption 
that somebody who grew up in northern Minnesota never uses anything other than the backstrap or maybe the the, the hind leg. Yeah, and that's just not true. No, it's it's not. Mm. There are the and where I was going to get to this full animal utilization thing is I grew up in a culture where trapping was a very big thing. I trapped growing up. I paid for my my spring semester, my first year of college by over Christmas break and spring break, trapping muskrats and beaver. And in that culture, you couldn't eat a hundred beaver. You might trap them and you'd use their fur and you'd grind them up and you'd take Must them. resist juvenile joke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. Uh, <coughs> and uh, so... It, you would, and I don't know if you'd call it rationalize or it was just economics. <clears throat> you would take the hide of the beaver and you'd sell that. And then you'd take the carcasses out to a mink farm or out to some other farm where they would grind up the carcasses and they'd pay you for that. And I know a lot of people struggle to look at trapping because it has a lot of economic connotation to it oh you're converting this animal to nothing more than whatever its pelt is worth or whatever its other parts are worth um and maybe i'm just i grew up in that culture so i understand it uh, of where it comes from but i get a lot of people who say well i'll hunt but i won't trap and i don't have any problem with that if people feel that way but most of the trappers i know have a very strong concern and ethic towards their interaction with the animals and they're very concerned about making sure that everything gets utilized from the fur down to the skulls down to the claws down to the whole works and and i know some are probably listening saying well that's just fine newberg but i'm not going there i i mean we've focused on hunting and gathering and stuff here but another part whether it's indigenous cultures trapping and utilization of those animals for economic value is also part of of certain tribes whether you know when when you use the word tribe hank i feel like i came from a tribe however you want to define that because i carried with me so many traits characteristics cultures traditions of that tribe of Kuchiching county northern minnesota that i i left there so heavily influenced by that and i still am today whether it's my value systems of how I view the wildlife, how I interact with them, how I use them, all the, what, what I think is a fair pursuit not versus not a p- fair pursuit, some of my almost religious feelings about or spiritual feelings about the landscape and, and those other wild, whether it's fish or, or whatever, I, I'm definitely a tribe member. And, and JR says as he grew and and got older some of his traditions and cultures and, and perspective changed same for me now i feel like i came from a certain tribe but i almost associate with a different tribe today as i've grown and well expanded. a lot of that's just what's great about america is that you can you can choose to be who you want to be yeah well true <laughs> yeah Compared. i indefinitely and, and i just have this i'm naturally curious so i i'm always wondering i you know and I always try and wonder what what other people are doing or what perspectives they have or, um, you know, how, how, how they might, uh, you know, approach something else. And, you know, go back to, you know, the using of, uh, you know, old school hunters or, you know, didn't use everything. And one of the first things that when I first shot my elk there, we had a number of cabins on the hillside and 
um, you know, we brought the liver over to um, one of the guy's cabins. He's like, you have to, you have to have liver and onions. I'm like, and I, I sure didn't eat a lot of it at, at 12 yeah. years old. It wasn't, it wasn't ideal for me from a taste perspective, but it was one of those things of, you know, these guys were, uh, were just classic. And, you know, I shot my, I've shot my first elk and, uh, and a guy walked up to me and my dad wasn't a, a big fan of using awful, but a guy walked up and he walked up to our gut pile and congratulated us and, you know, said good job kid. And he, he just started asking of, you know, all the different components that, you know, wanted to make sure that we were going to use everything so he could, he could use everything. And, um, you know, but it's just, you know, all these different groups that we see and, you know, we see it on, on, on Hank's fa- Facebook page and I see it on, you know, through the social aspect of co- through hunt talk, um, and all the different folks there. So yes, yeah. it's it, so much it's, of it is cultural. My grandpa Newberg came, his family came from Sweden. My grandma Newberg, her family came from there's Finland. Swedes in Northern Minnesota. <laughs> no, <laughs> you wouldn't know it, would you? <laughs> but <clears throat> they were very utilitarian in everything they did. Um, they, they were, from what I gather, anyhow, my family back in Scandinavia was very utilitarian. When they moved to northern Minnesota, it was very much a subsistence life. Um, but in spite of that, when my grandfather shot a deer, and there was only one time before he passed that I was along on a hunt when he shot a deer, the very first thing that happened is the heart came out. That was like the the big chocolate, the the cheesecake. I mean... He put it in his hunting coat pocket, the very first thing. And then as he proceeded to gutting the deer, he took the liver and he hung it in a tree. And it still is remarkable to me to this day, and I do it. He put it in the tree because he thought the birds deserved the chance to eat the liver before weasels or whatever other ground scavengers would get it. Ravens probably. Yeah. And I can't explain to you why, where that came from in his traditions. But guess what I do? I the heart is the very first thing that gets eaten at my house. I, you know, I there will never be a heart that goes to waste unless I've shot it and it's got you know some some damage to it. A liver, I I have never brought a liver home. I if. If you see one of my gut piles and there's a bunch of magpies sitting on a limb eating a liver. Pinto pheasants. <laughs> you know that, that Randy is probably the one who did that. And I can't explain some of those strange things. But I think as this tribe, as this handing on traditions, whether you want to, you know, you think about, okay, the Blackfeet hunting buffalo. Can you imagine how cool it would have been to just sit there and observe their tribe and their traditions and their interactions and their values of what they placed on certain things and certain behaviors? I'd give anything to roll back the hands of time and sit around one of their campfires after a big buffalo hunt. You can almost get a slice of it or a flavor of it by looking at the the First Nations people way up north. Okay. When they do their like muskox hunting or or seal or or walrus hunting or something like that. Uh Uh-huh. You know, the pursuit of a big nasty thing that's hard to get you know and you know you can you you look at it and like that must be what very similar to what it was in the plains yeah so i'm i can't say that i utilize every absolute aspect of an animal when i take it i i utilize all the meat i mean neck roast to the whole works i don't take the tongue i don't eat the not even of elk and and moose save those for me next time yeah really mail them to me Okay. See, I, in my family, another bloody box in the mail. <laughs> oh, this one's from Newberg. It's got to be an odd bit from an ungulate. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, so there were, and some would probably criticize, oh, Randy, you didn't, you didn't take the tongue. You didn't, you know, you put the liver in the tree. I, I, I don't know how to explain that other than it's just how I, how it's evolved for me. How it's a, the, the customs, the traditions I grew up with. From a cook's perspective, because I always come at it from a, so I'm a cook who hunts, not a hunter who cooks. Right. And I love, I actually, I, I, I have pieces of the backstrap of the last three deer I have in the freezer still. And really? all of the offal's been eaten. All of the hard parts, the shanks are one of the first things that gets eaten. The neck roast is, I mean, if you, if you crock pot a neck roast and, and shred it for like a Mexican barbacoa or something, it's the best part of the entire deer to do that with. So and you're saying I shouldn't grind it anymore. I wouldn't, or at least okay. I mean, if you kill more than one, grind one and then try the other. And, and because there's so much connective tissue in it when it's, when it's slow cooked and shredded, it makes a far superior shredded meat thing, however you're going to do that with, than a hind leg. Hind leg's terrible for that because it's too much lean muscle. Yeah. You know, it's, I always find myself using, like, okay, so on a good salmon year in California, I mean, I'll catch hundreds of pounds of salmon. I get so tired of the fillets. I give all the fillets away. What, like do, you, a, what, what do you keep? The bellies, the collars, the racks. And because the racks, you know, you can either make a tartare out of it or you throw it on the grill and then shred it. It makes the best salmon salad ever. The bellies have so much fat in them, right. nobody's getting them. Yep. Yeah. And the collars, and you know, a collar on a Chinook, one collar can feed, you know, one person easily. And it's just, and it's again, the quality of the meats of those pieces on a on a deer or on a fish there it's a different texture it's a different uh grain it is a different mouthfeel and i just i get tired of back back stuff eh, it's okay you know uh, and it's it's fine there's nothing wrong with it but give me something that give that, that lights my fire as a cook and that's i'd much rather like i'm still thinking about that that i did venison tripe neapolitan which is it's cooked so it's nice and tender and then it's finished off in a very spicy tomato sauce. Uh-huh. It's a very traditional Southern Italian dish that I grew up with because I grew up in an Italian. There's lots of Italians in the town I grew up in in, in New Jersey, and it's just, it's that's a cultural thing. Like I grew up with this dish done with beef, and I just tried to recreate it with with a venison, and it worked. And I'm still like, oh God, I don't have any more tripe because there's only it's not that much on a deer yeah. and it's you know you get this whole hind leg like uh, okay it's you know <laughs> i'll deal you know it's fine you know there's nothing wrong with it but i mean i the, all the shanks get eaten first and and it's just it's how i approach stuff and it's i know it's i know i'm a freak i know i'm different you know but but so be it yeah i i'm i'm kind of the same way i i i've kind of grown fond of you know stuff that's more unique i mean i'll, I'll eat backstrap all day long um, but I, I love the heart. Um, uh, you know, I, I love the heart, the, the fish. So when we, when I go salmon fishing, one of my, you know, we, we process it, we get our fish home, we process it. One of my favorite things to do is just grab a spoon and just scrape the carcass spoon meat, spoon meat and grab it and, and make, make a, basically make a burger out of it and throw it on the grill. And that, that's, that's the day of the catch meal. And that is one of my absolute favorite. It is. Walk and, me and through that, JR. What you take a spoon along. It, so, the, yeah. The, so, so be basically, you got a salmon, right? You figure you, you fillet, fillet it off. It. So you've got this, you've got this, you spine, know, spine and yep. spine and ribs. 
and there is and you know there's all this meat stuck in there you know throughout the throughout the ribs and whatnot and you basically just just take a spoon or any type of other thing and you can just you can just pull it right off and it's basically ground quote unquote ground for you already throw it in a bowl add some spices a binder you know so you probably a little bit of a little bit of gluten a little bit of you know some egg yeah. um, to bind it together uh, throw in some herbs um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't do salt and pepper on it until I actually get it. You know, it's actually in burger form, throw it on the grill, grill it up. And it is, it is one of the most fantastic things. And at that time too, I'll have the heads. So the heads get thrown on the fire too, because that cheek meat, it's right. just a, it's the best little nugget packet of meat. It, it, you know, yeah. you, you peel back the skin and it's like, it's, it's like, it's its own little flavor packet and it's just it this is. little nug of meat. And, and it's, it's absolutely fundamentally different from every other piece of meat on the salmon. It is yep. in walleye. So I'll go to Fort Peck in Montana and they have a fish cleaning station there and I will stand there. And when guys are done filleting their fish, I'm like, you done with that? Cause they're ready to run it through the grinder. They're like, yeah. And I'm standing there and I'm cutting cheek meat out of every walleye yep. there. And I call them cheekers. And my son, when he's a little kid, he's like, hey, Dad, are we going to eat cheekers tonight? Yeah. They, they are, like you said, fundamentally different. They have a different texture. They have this sweet, very Almost rich crab, taste. Almost crab-like, maybe? Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, man, it's so good. And people would look at me like, this dude's got a problem and, here. And yet, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, halibut cheeks are part of the culture. Yeah. And if you're, well, my mom is from Massachusetts and codfish cheeks and cod yeah. throats. I mean, this is, you get this, this is a bar snack. It's a bar snack in Gloucester. And you know, and then you get to other parts, and like you look at you like nine nine heads. What are you doing with that? You know? Grow, growing up in Seattle, halibut cheek. I, I mean, again, I love halibut, delicious fish. But I, I mean, you, I, 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 I'd, if I had the option of eating halibut steak for free or paying twenty bucks for halibut cheeks, I'd pay the twenty bucks and eat halibut cheeks. Yeah, I'm. I'm, the I'm not trying to go that far, but uh, <laughs> I think I would with walleye cheeks. I I don't know what it is, and when you cook them, yep. you can identify them because they're these yeah. like little medallion looking things, and it's like, all right, honey, I'm gonna give you some of these walleye fillets. I'm keeping these cheeks here, and they just I don't know. They're so, I, you know, for lack of a better term, there's so much goodness hidden in a carcass, uh, whether that's a whether that's an ungulate or um, you know, or, or a fish. I mean, I had that moose tag last year, all I could think about all I could just, I, and I, I was, I can't wait to get those femurs because I want after that bone marrow. Really? That is, and oh, Hank yeah. even, Hank even sent me a note. He's like, are you bringing the femurs out or yeah. something to that effect? I'm like, hell yes, I am. And cause you know, I know a lot of people go hunt moose and moose is a beastly big animal and you know if you can cut weight bone's going to be one of those things but there is there was no way that i, I mean I, my first pack out probably would have been the femurs and the heart and the tongue and maybe you know the head and the rack like that was probably what i would have packed out initially oh yeah yeah we did bone marrow oh my god so good really so good see that never been part of my culture or traditions of bone marrow the bones always got chucked for you know the dogs ate them or what you know left them out and the bears that eat them or however the um i have several recipes of for bone marrow in the book and including marrow dumplings so you push the marrow out uh, like a regular deer like a typical white tail with you don't have super thick uh femurs uh-huh. so you just take a chopstick or something and push that marrow out and then you make you know it's a german dish it's a it, they're just dumplings that you float them in a, a, a dark venison broth and they're they're punch your mama good I'll put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, guys, man, I want to continue this conversation because 
I know, I know we're running up against time for all of us here. Um, but this discussion of food can go on forever and ever and ever. And it just, it always brings me back to where my heart is about hunting or fishing or whatever it is. I, as much as I do a TV show and I have all these platforms and we get into the, you know, politics of public lands and we get into, you know, discussions of antlers and trophy hunting or whatever you want to make the topic. Those topics often seem to be draining and divisive. But when I get back to food, I just feel like I'm home. I, it's, I, I don't know how to say it, but it, it's just, well, a lot of the other stuff just kind of melts away. Um, you know, it, it just, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of not in sight anymore. And, you know, you may have a f- group of folks around the table or you may be reminiscing about how, you know, your challenge to get that animal, your adventure, the things you saw. I mean, you know, just it, things like that. It just, it, it, it just kind of brings you back. I mean, the pursuit of food is as old as time. Right. Um, which is, you know, which, you know, when you had Shane Mahoney on, just some of those uh, anthropological aspects of talking about hunting and how we've, you know, evolved as a, as a species, it just, um, you know, we, we've had a lot of modern constructs to, like, kind of, like, get us distracted from, uh, you know, really kind of the core. Um, yeah. And, and that'll happen, and, and hopefully we can work through those things as, as, a, as a tribe, as a clan, as a, as a society. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, everybody's got to eat and, um, there's, there's just so much value in, in enjoying that meal of not only the pursuit of trying to prepare something really, you know, make this delicious dish, but you know, the pursuit of how that, you know, how that meat even got in your freezer from the, you know, uh, to begin with. Yeah. I and when Shane was on that podcast, he, he brought up one, one of you guys talked about the sharing aspect. Shane talked in depth about how the hunting gathering culture has always been about sharing. And the food part of it gets us back to this sharing. Part. Absolutely. I mean, one of my earliest memories as a kid in Jersey is, you know, Louie down the street would come home with like 50 bluefish. How are you going to eat 50 bluefish? Because they can't freeze. They turn to mush. So everybody in the neighborhood got bluefish. And it's just, and I guarantee you, most people listening to this have, is now, you're now thinking of that, oh, that time where somebody brought the blueberries by or somebody brought some venison by or some fish or whatever. So you're right. And it's just, it's a huge part of just, we're hardwired for it. Yeah. Well, guys. Breaks down a lot of barriers when you're sitting across the table from somebody as opposed to, um, you know, off in your box. Um, somewhere else um which is which is which is good you can engage in conversations and enjoy that and and be respectful of that that person that was able to bring you that thing you know whether it's a, a mushroom or a backstrap yeah i uh, i hope that our society starts getting out of their boxes and sitting around sharing food and don't drink to that yeah <laughs> i will too but i think you guys drank to that too much last night you might say that, but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> oh, anyhow, we're about ready to head down the path we tried to avoid when we were uh, before we turned the mics on. So, folks, I'm gonna thank Hank and Jr. for sitting in and, and giving us such uh, such great thoughts, so many cool things to to think about as we hunt, gather, fish, whatever it is. Um, food is 
is the common thread that weaves through everyone's lives and that it's a point to uh to think about when we are hunting that that just is it's it's going to provide for more opportunity to bring more people to hunting it's going to increase the understanding of the society trying to understand where we fit as hunters and uh Hank, you got any pitches for your books before we let you go? Come on. We, I want I want people to read your books, so please tell them what your books are. Well, I, I've got two out. Uh, first one is called Hunt, Gather, Cook, uh, and that's got, it's sort of a primer on the wild world, and no matter what you're good at, uh, chances are this book will open up a door for something that you're not as good at. In uh, The second book is uh, for duck hunters. It's called uh, Duck, Duck, Goose. And or, you know, the Minnesota version is Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. <laughs> and and that is a book, of, uh, everything you could possibly want to know about uh, cooking and preparing and, and dealing with waterfowl. So I decided to take that theme and do it for my third book, which comes out on September 1st. And that one is Buck, Buck, Moose. <laughs> Similar. That, uh, it's going to look the same, full color, hardcover. Our goal is for it to be the, the ultimate venison in a broadest sense cookbook so it deals with deer and elk and moose and antelope and all that sort of thing and it will be everything you ever wanted to know about once the deer or the animal is on the ground to all the way through to several hundred you know recipes in it as well so it's it's just, okay. it'll be comprehensive and heavily illustrated and your other platforms besides the facebook page you told us about your website is uh hunter angler gardener cook and and your your radio podcast. I, I do have a podcast called Hunt Gather Talk. Hunt Gather Talk. And is that on iTunes and Stitcher? It is indeed. Okay. Well, Hank, thanks for being here. JR, you got a plug for the backcountry hunters and anglers you want to put in here? Or a plug for your, your wife's medical practice? Or a, uh, whatever it is you want to <laughs> plug, it's up to you. So Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm now an official employee of my wife's medical practice, but that's a... <laughs> Uh, she's really got you now. She's both your wife and your employer. She's yeah. going to have you out <laughs> gathering roots and things. <laughs> um, but no, uh, I'm, I'm sure most of you that are listening have, uh, have heard about Country Hunters and Anglers, um, the sportsman's voice for wild public land and public waters. Uh, we're uh, too late for any of you now, but we're here in Missoula at our annual rendezvous. But if you're in a state with a chapter, um, and we've got chapters growing up in, uh, in, in more and more states daily. So uh, if you're interested in uh, protecting public land and making sure that we have a place to hunt, fish, forage, ride horses, uh, hike, bird watch, whatever, whatever it is that might be important to you, um, please check, out, check them out. And uh, I think that's about it for me. JR, Hank, thanks so much, folks. Um, if you want to uh, follow all of our platforms, um, go to our YouTube channel, uh, Randy Newberg Hunter. We've really started cranking that up. We've posted a bunch of videos about why I hunt. Uh, I'd be interested in your feedback on those. They're short. They're about two minutes long. Uh, it's food. It's conservation. It's culture. It's wanting to be a participant rather than a spectator. Um, lots of good stuff out on our YouTube channel. Um, you can also download our, our TV episodes on our VHX platform. Uh, go to randynewberg.com. Uh, at randynewberg.com, you'll have all kinds of things there about our Hunt Talk forum, uh, which is hunttalk.com. You can download episodes directly there. You can listen to this podcast directly from there. And uh, you can find out what I'm up to, where I'm going, and where Randy's big mouth will be making a fool of himself. So, guys... Thanks so much. 
until the next time and there will be a next time thank you thanks a lot for having me thanks for having us yeah thanks for listening folks